Welcome. Thank you for joining us today. We have another great class with Rabbi Ari Bernstein today. So thank you so much for being here. Um, just to give you a little bit of an intro, Rabbi Aryeh is a fifth-generation Chicago Southsider and veteran Torah educator, especially in social justice spheres. He's the National Jewish Educator for Avodah, for the Jewish Council on Urban Affairs, and a longtime educator for the Jewish Initiative for Animals. He's a senior editor of JewSchool.com, a member of the Tzedek Lab, and a firm believer that all justice movements must include a commitment to ending the horror of factory farming. So without further ado, Rabbi Aryeh. Thanks so much, Emma. Thank you, Rav Shmuley and Eddie and everybody else and uh, Shamaim and Oyla Tzedek and whoever else is, um, is co-sponsoring. I really appreciate it. It's a joy to be here again for the third part of our three-part series. Um, and uh, while I've long for, for seven or eight years really enjoyed my relationship with Shamaim, going to several of the wonderful conferences and more, I also want to um, uh, give a shout out and acknowledge JIFA, the Jewish Initiative for Animals, in whose context I developed the materials that we're going to be uh, learning today. It's really in their, uh, their context and their work that I um, developed the thinking about this. So today we are going to be thinking about a very particular halachic Jewish legal question about the kashrut of milk in particular. Um, eggs somewhat secondarily, but especially talking about dairy. And I just want to frame that unlike our two previous sessions, which kind of explicitly focused on the animal welfare, or animal rights, or vegan questions involved, we had a session on um, just the Torah's ethic about eating animals and context for allowing eating animals in general. We had a session about the laws of Tsar Ba'alei Chayim, of the, the laws of preventing or intervening against uh, pain for animals. Today's session will explore texts that some readers will read without thinking at all about animal welfare, animal rights, vegan issues. And they're relevant for people who are omnivores as well. But I think there is a particular um, animal welfare, animal rights, vegan um, thread going through them, and certainly an interest for us in understanding um, some basic halakhic questions. So I'm going to start walking through. I'm going to do a kind of walking through of the texts. If you have a question, um, you can send it in the chat if you're on the Facebook, if you're on the, um, the Zoom link. And if you're on Facebook Live, uh, Emma, is that right? They can type in a question uh, there and you'll see it. Great. And Emma will send me the question. So if you're watching on Facebook Live, please do send in questions and we'll leave some time. Um, uh, we'll, we'll break a couple of times to see if there are questions and come back and leave time at the end. Uh, for questions and discussion, if uh, if relevant. So, without further ado, let's jump in. I'm going to share my screen um, and try.
Okay. So I'm going to walk through a bunch of Jewish legal halachic sources that um, really address the question of can milk be kosher when it comes to factory farm when it comes from factory farms. And toward that end, we're going to have to look at some basic definitions in the earliest uh, texts of, of halacha of Jewish law about the kashrut of milk in the first place, what makes milk kosher, what the problem could be, etc. So just to set some definitional terms, the book of Dvarim, Deuteronomy, chapter 14, 21. Here, our context is when and how is it permitted to eat animals and their products in the Torah's final analysis. So just to set the stage, um, Deuteronomy 14, 21 says, out of a larger context, do not eat Carrion, nivela. Carrion is the word that we don't use so much in casual English, but many uh, Bible translations will use that word. We will jump to a sec in a second to see what the Jewish legal definition of nivela is. Dead animal. So there's a certain kind of dead animal you're not allowed to eat. Carrion. To the migrant who's near gates, you may give it, that they may eat it or sell it to a foreigner. For you're a holy people to Adonai your God. So... First of all, there's this law that don't, um, there are certain kinds of animals that the Torah thinks may be eaten in general by people, but not by Jewish people, depending on how it dies. We'll get to that definition in a second. That is in Hebrew called nivela. And then tacked on, a law gleaned earlier from the Book of Shemot, do not boil a kid in its mother's milk, which is the origin for prohibitions about mixing milk and dairy and cooking and eating in commerce. So that's nivela. Don't eat nivela. We'll define it in a second. Then we have another more commonly known term, trefa, Shemot, Exodus chapter 22, verse 30, you shall be a people of holiness to me, on Kodesh to Yunli. Therefore, flesh in the field that is torn, you shall not eat. To the dogs, you shall cast it. Don't go out and see that an animal has been shredded to death by other animals and then eat its flesh. That has to be thrown to the dogs. Both of these, the prohibition of nevela and the prohibition of, tref of trefa, are prohibitions for Jewish people, not for people in general, more broadly. Um, so I think according to the plain meaning of scripture, of the Torah, plain meaning, I'd say, would be that um, Nevela in Devarim, Deuteronomy 14.21, probably, this one feels a little bit more vague, but probably refers to um, animal that died on its own. You go and find an animal dead. Certain kinds of uh, of animal rights or animal welfare perspectives might say, if you're ever going to eat animals, only eat animals that died in, in any event on their own. You can't raise them. You can't kill them. But if they're dead anyway, there's a certain kind of minimalist um, um, attitude about that, which makes sense from a certain from certain ethical and environmental perspectives. The Torah is centering a concept of Kedusha, of Kodesh living here, and a different kind of mindset. As we talked about in our first session together, one of the Torah's main conceptions about eating animals seems to be you have to own up to what you're doing. Don't treat animals as a commodity food. 
or even just as food. You have to treat it as an animal. You have to be fully mindful and uh, taking control over uh, the loss of life and acknowledge what you're doing. So in this context, nevela in plain meaning of the Torah seems to mean an anim- animal that dies on its own. Um, you can say with more confidence, trefa in Exodus Shemot 22 30 um, describes itself being an animal that has been ripped to death out in the field. Nevela and trefa. Some questions get raised once the laws of sacrificial slaughter get applied to all meat, once all meat, even not in sacrificial structures, gets permitted to people, as we saw in our session two sessions ago. Um, and the laws of slaughter start to get applied to all meat consumption, and that creates a vacuum a little bit. We're not going to go into the whole thing, but just for background purposes, um, if you look in this Mishnah, the foundational text of rabbinic Jewish life, published orally around the year 200 CE, land of Israel, the Mishnah in the tractate Chulain um, tries to concretize, based on these biblical passages, what these prohibit, prohibited categories of Nevela and Trefa are. So a general principle was said by Rabbi Yeshevav in the name of Rabbi Yeshua. Anything that has become unfit via its slaughtering is a nevela. Anything whose slaughter was proper, but something else conceded, caused it rather to be unfit, is a trefa. Rabbi Akiva, who had originally had a different interpretation, conceded to him that that made sense. So here's how they've somewhat broadened the categories from the narrow cases in the Torah. Anything that has become unfit via its slaughtering, meaning the animal died in a way other than proper sanctioned ritual slaughter. That could mean the animal just died on its own. That could mean person killed it and didn't even try to slaughter it according to the sacrificial laws of Shechita, but hit it over the head um, or tortured it to to death, as happens millions of times every day in our country, uh, thousands of times every day. Um, It could mean that person was intending to do proper slaughter, but the knife slipped, or they discovered the knife had a nick that they had missed before and that it did a grabbing motion. Anything that in which the animal's death didn't happen by the perfect application of the laws of slaughter, is forbidden and is a nevela. Anything that, even if it was slaughtered properly, but there's something else that caused it to be unfit, something else that made it a akin to an animal torn by the field, that's a trefa. Um, and the Rambam, uh, in his 12th century code, Laws of Forbidden Foods, um, gives us some of those examples of what might make an animal a trefa, even if it was slaughtered properly. Um, so here's how he sums it up. Thus one learns that the Torah forbade that which died, which is a nevela, and it forbade one that was on the verge of dying because of its wounds, even though it has not died yet, which is a trefa. Just as you would not distinguish with regard to the death between one that died of its own, whether it fell and died, whether it was strangled until it died, whether it was trampled by a wild beast which killed it. Similarly, do not distinguish between an animal that's on the verge of dying, regardless of whether it was torn apart by an animal and battered, which is the Torah's example in Exodus, 
whether it fell from the roof and broke the majority of its ribs, whether it fell and crushed its limbs, whether it was shot with an arrow in its heart or lung with and its heart and lung were punctured, whether it developed an illness on its own that punctured its heart or lung or broke the majority of its ribs or the like. Since it's on the verge of death, regardless of the cause, it's a trefa, whether the cause was flesh and blood or the hands of heaven. Just to I'll make sure we understand this. What this means is that if an animal is mortally wounded, not dead yet, if an animal is mortally wounded or sick, then from a kosher halachic perspective, there's no purpose to slaughter it with the laws of slaughter. If, an, if you know an animal to be mortally sick or wounded, it is unfit for consumption. I think the idea being that even though we don't have a temple, even though while we did have a temple, non-sacrificial animals were permitted, we have to be doing some mimicry of, of the values of sacrificial eating, of really saying like, oh, I'm not just, um, I'm not eating a kind of food product here. This has to be a perfect animal. This has to be a healthy, strong animal that I'm kind that I'm mindfully, consciously acknowledging that I'm taking its life and something that would be fit on the altar, not something that would be leftovers or throwaway to give to God. But if unless it's something that could be was healthy and strong um, as a sacrifice, uh, can't eat it either. So how does that come up in practical Torah life? Well, first of all, if animals have a disease, an animal has cancer, has another disease, um, or has a terrible injury, then how you kill it is is kosherly irrelevant. You're not allowed to eat it. Um, and the where where it comes up most frequently is that every animal after it's slaughtered has its lung, the slaughterer, the shochet, shocheta has to check the lungs and make sure that there weren't lung lesions. Sometimes an animal might have a serious illness that is undetectable from the outside. You slaughter and you find out that like, oh wow, this animal actually had lung lesions. It wasn't gonna last the year. Um, forbidden to eat. That's why Shochtim check the lungs and all sorts of stories from the shtetl about, you know, a poor person bringing the chicken to the rabbi and after she spotted a he or she spotted a spot on the lungs and said, oh, no, can I not eat it? I spent so much money on it. That's that context to see whether it's a trade fight. Now, you might be wondering, I thought we were talking about dairy today. Why are we talking with such gruesome detail about killing animals? Um, for some of us, that even might be triggering, triggering, like terrible things we've seen. Um, for, there's a background all of this is relevant to understand what the permission is in Torah law for eating dairy and eggs. We'll see that in a second. But also, I do just want to plant here that even though it's not fully our topic, if, if you are going through this material and thinking, huh, an animal with a serious illness can't be considered kosher, I've watched these documentaries about factory farms and these animals are so loaded up with disease because they're packed on top of each other, standing in each other's poop and breathing it all in that they develop and being fed on healthy things so that they have like, you know, stomach lesions. And because they're eating corn instead of grazing, 
and they're breathing each other's poop and they have to be so loaded with antibiotics so as to prevent inevitable diseases. If you're wondering, might there not be a trefa problem for the kashrut of those animals? I think you're asking a good question. And these are questions that we should be exploring. They're not fully our topic today, so I will just bracket it, but I want to make sure um, you see it there. Revisiting what are the kinds of illnesses and uh, wounds that are um, that render an animal forbidden for consumption, and what are the rabbi's assumptions of how frequently an animal turns out to be a trefa? And if it turns out that today it's a much higher conception than they might have ever assumed was possible, maybe that's an indication that something is out of whack. Okay, so that's all background. Moving on to milk and eggs. So, what are you? What dairy are Jewish people are allowed to consume and eggs. What's the law regarding milk and eggs coming from a trefa animal? They're forbidden. How do we know whether any particular milk or egg is forbidden or permitted? So a foundational rabbinic text called the Tosefta, which is a parallel text to the Mishnah. Um, Some of the material is probably prior to the Mishnah. The editing of the Tosefta is probably a little later than the Mishnah, but they're parallel texts. Tosefta and Hulain teaches that one may buy eggs from any place and need not worry lest they're from Nevelot or Trefo. The assumption that this Tosefta is making is that if you know that an egg is from a Nevela or a Trefa animal, you're not allowed to eat it. But because that's not usually the case, you can go to a market, some Gentile is selling eggs on the side of the road, or a Jewish person, doesn't matter. You can buy it and you don't have to wonder like, oh, well, wh- what if the chicken that laid these eggs was a trade fat? It's actually an existential problem. The chicken in your own backyard that's laying an eggs might be a trade fat. You don't know. Sometimes you know, but often, I mean, you don't know until after it's slaughtered and you check its lungs, you check its insides. So if you're not allowed to eat eggs from a trefa animal, how are we ever allowed to eat eggs? Because the animal might be a trefa. So Tosefta is saying here, if you know, then it's forbidden, but you don't have to worry about it. The Mishnah, in parallel to that, talking about uh, dairy, says that a keva, we'll define that in a second, keva, from a Gentile or from a Nevela is forbidden. Remember, a Nevela we've defined as an animal that died by any manner other than a perfectly executed kosher slaughter. So a keva bought from a Gentile or a keva from a Nevela animal is forbidden. A kosher animal that nursed from a trefa, a different case, its keva is forbidden. Rashi defines keva there. I'm not going to get into the whole textual history of why. For our purposes, Rashi uh, defines the keva as the congealed milk in its stomach. So let's take the simplest case. Let's leave the Gentile case on the side for, for a second, just so as not to confuse us. A ke- uh, uh, so if there's a Nevela animal, you're not allowed to eat the animal. We know that. It died natural death or it died by being hit over the head. The congealed milk inside its stomach 
is also forbidden. It's part of its body part. The Mishnah also says that a kosher animal that nursed from a trefa, so you have a mortally ill, a cancerous mother animal, but is still able to nurse, the baby animal that nursed from its mother, the keva inside of the baby is forbidden. In other words, we identify that milk with its source. And since its source was forbidden, therefore that milk is forbidden. So this baby animal is kosher, but the keva, the congealed milk inside its stomach, is forbidden because it got there directly from a forbidden animal. So we see that um, in the Mishnah and Hulin, the basic principle, the assumption here is that milk from a forbidden animal is forbidden. And the Tosefta, eggs that you're allowed to buy eggs anywhere, and you don't need to worry lest they're from Nevelo or Trefo. So the Talmud has a problem here. It sounds like the Tosefta thinks eggs from a forbidden animal are okay. And it sounds like the Mishnah thinks that milk from a forbidden animal is not okay. And the Talmud can't think of why eggs and dairy would be different. Are the products of a kosher and are the products of a forbidden animal forbidden or permitted? So here's the resolution in the Talmud tractate Chulin 116b. So if so, on this Mishnah, wait a second, isn't the keva of a Gentile, isn't that the same as a novella? Like what, what does that mean? What does that mean, a keva from a Gentile or from a novella? Any dead animal you buy from a Gentile is going to be a novella because kosher slaughter can only happen by a Jew who is observant and pious and follows all these um, procedures. So Rav Huna says, okay, what the mission is dealing with there is one who purchased a kid from a Gentile. So if you purchase, purchase a baby goat from a Gentile, so we worry so the keva of that baby goat that you purchased from a Gentile might have nursed from a trefan. So we don't allow that keva. Okay, but the Gemara asks, wait a second, do we really worry lest it nursed from a trefan? Didn't we learn that one may, in the Tosafta, one may purchase eggs from Gentiles and need not worry lest they're from Nevelo to trefo? So in other words, our Mishnah is telling us that Body products of forbidden animals are forbidden, but didn't we learn elsewhere that you can buy eggs anywhere and don't need to worry that it came from a forbidden animal? So the Gemara resolves, rather, I would say we worry lest it nursed from an impure animal. So it's not that we worry that it came from a trefa. Maybe the Tosefta taught us that we're not allowed to eat Nivelot or trefot, but their products are okay. Maybe the problem of the Gentile is that it nursed from a pig, you know, from a totally forbidden animal. The Gemara is like, well, I don't know about that. What's the difference between a trefa about which we don't worry and an impure animal about which we do worry? Why should there be any difference? They're equally forbidden in Torah law. And the answer is that a trefa is not commonly found. An impure animal is commonly found. In other words, when the Tosefta like the basic principle is that milk and eggs from forbidden animals are forbidden. The only reason the Tosefta in this case said that um, 
you don't need to worry. You can buy eggs from anywhere. Is that like, you, I mean, you, you can tell what animal an egg is from. So you know it's from a proper animal. And it's unusual for an animal to be a trefa. It's just not that common. And so you don't need to worry that the egg that I'm eating is from a trefa. Even if you know that, you know, 5% of all animals in the world end up turning out to be trefa and you didn't know it after the fact. You don't have to assume that that was the problem. The same logic would apply to milk. If you know that this particular cow or goat has a mortal injury or illness, definitely not allowed to drink its milk. But according to this logic of the Talmud, that a trefa is not commonly found, you can milk the milk of an animal, of a cow, and assume that the cow, that the cow is fine and assume that the milk is fine. Otherwise, you'd never be allowed to drink milk because you wouldn't know whether the animal is a trefa until after you kill it which means that then you can't get the milk. Milk would be impossible. So the reason why milk is permissible in general, even though on occasion you might find out that it came from a forbidden animal, the reason milk is permissible is because there aren't that many trefos. It's not that common. You don't have to worry about it. Okay. So that gets us now, we turn into more complicated territory. So I have to give some background for the passage we're about to look at. So you're going to find the Talmud's core passage regarding the legal significance in halakha of majority. A majority that is before us in Aramaic, ruba de'itakaman, that's a term, it's a legal term for a closed set, i.e. there's a set and no number of sources from which the item before us may have come, we just don't know which. A majority that is not before us, Ruba Deleta Kaman, means an open set where the source from the item in question is totally unknown, and all we can rely on is general statistics. So for our purposes, we're going to call it majority that is before us if, let's say, we milk 10 cows and then slaughter them, and at that point, we discover that one of those 10 cows is a trefa, but we don't know which bucket of milk was filled from that cow. We have 10 buckets of milk that came from 10 cows. We know this cow is a trefa, but we don't know which bucket came from it. We forgot to label them. So that's a majority that is before us. We'll see that in the text in front of us. We'll call it a majority that is not before us. If we have no idea which cow anywhere in the world produced the milk before us, and we only know approximately what percentage of cows are trefa. That might have seemed very abstract. Let's see it in the text. Talmud Bavli, Chulin 11a. From where is the statement of our sages to follow the majority? We see in a bunch of different halachot, including just like legal decisions, that if there's a court with the split opinion and two judges ruled against one, you go with the majority. What's the origin for that rabbinic principle? Well, the Gemara is like, what do you mean from where? It's written in Exodus 23.2 to incline after the majority. Now, it says as though that's obvious. If you look in the context there, it's not so obvious. It's not really our context. So I'll just invite you to go in and uh, into the passage there and reach your own conclusions. But for the jurisprudential purposes, it seems they're taking it as obvious that a verse says explicitly, we incline after the majority. So the Talmud reasons here, okay, about a majority that is before us, 
such as nine stores. Like you have nine stores and you know that, you know, uh, nine of them were selling kosher meat and one was selling treif meat and there are 10 pieces of meat out there and you don't know which one came from which. You know, or the Sanhedrin. We know who the judges are. We just don't know who ruled. And we don't even need to ask. There it's obvious that we follow the majority. Where we need to ask is a majority that is not before us. Let's go on. I'll explain momentarily. Rav Ashi said, the principle of following majority comes from slaughtering itself. The merciful wants it slaughter and eat. Shouldn't one worry lest you slaughtered in a place of the puncture? What if the exact place that an animal had like a lung lesion was the exact place that the knife went through? It's possible that you're now eating a forbidden animal. No, follow the majority. That's We don't worry about remote cases. So Rav Ashi said, I said this tradition before Rav Kahana. Rav Kahana said it before Rav Simeon said to him. So maybe where it's possible, it's possible. Where there's a case where you can be more precise and more cautious, then you can do that. But where it's impossible, it's impossible. Slaughtering is like you can't control a case where there's like a tiny lesion right under the, the, the neck. But maybe you should be concerned for minority cases if you can be. So if you, but if you say that that's the case, then how would you deal with like Pesach and sacred offerings? I'm not going to get into the specifics there, but rather where it's possible, it's possible. Where it's impossible, it's impossible. Now to um, what this means for our consideration is that um, if the, the Talmud teaches us here that if you have um, 10 buckets of milk and they came from 10 cows and one of those cows is a tray fun. You don't know which bucket came from it. You can drink all 10 buckets of the milk. Or some more stringent sages are a little more cautious and they say any one individual can drink their bucket of milk and say mine is most likely fine. They would say they can't, one person drinking all of it would mean they're definitely consuming forbidden milk. But any one person can say, chances are, I've got a nine out of 10 chance that I'm fine. And that's widely accepted. However, if it's a closed set that's not before us, so you don't you don't have a specific cow. You just have the general presumption, uh, the general possibility that sometimes there are trefo. So where it's possible to be stringent, you're stringent. Where it's impossible, it's impossible. And I think from their perspective, the very fact of drinking milk, well, it's impossible to check this animal to see whether it's a trefo. Usually they're not. It's okay to milk the animal and go ahead. Now, the Ramban has one of the classic commentaries on this passage. Um, he's an important medieval Spanish commentator, 13th century. Um, that by way of background, though there are 18 physical injuries that specifically render an animal a trefa, the tradition is that lung lesions are the only injury for which we're required to check. 
every animal after it's slaughtered, its lungs have to be checked. It's a more common injury. So the Ramban says, why, given that the Talmud lists these 17 other injuries that would render an animal forbidden. So we hear from this tradition that even with regard to the inspection of lung perforations, we follow the majority. The majority of domesticated animals don't have any trefo whatsoever. After all, you know, the commandments, the sacrificial animals of the broken-necked calf and the red heifer are performed when they are whole and, and without any incision whatsoever. We don't worry for any trefo. Nevertheless, our ancestors made it their practice to inspect for perforations of the lung because trefo are, are found there frequently. And we do not rely ab initio on majority with something that has a significant minority. It's still, it's only a minority of cases that an animal that seemed healthy has a lung lesion, but it could happen. Other ones are much more remote. We don't have to go check after them. Now, the problem is that the situation with our milk today, really since the time of, of industry, um, since the industrial, since industrial farming, not even, I mean, even prior to the most grotesque and horrific tortures of contemporary factory farming. But none of us, nobody who drinks milk bought in a supermarket is drinking milk from one particular animal. In contemporary industrial agriculture, all the milk from hundreds of cows is mixed together immediately. So there's no such situation as a bucket of carton of mil or milk from a particular cow. So it's not even like, I mean, the Talmud was like, the reason you're allowed to drink it is you can presume that the cow that produced your milk was trefa, was not trefa, because it's pretty rare. But the basic halakha about general mixtures of forbidden foods, this is Throughout rabbinic literature, I'm just bringing from the Shulchan Aruch, the 16th century code, something forbidden that was mixed in with something permitted, if it was a type with its type, meaning you can't detect it or pull it out or taste whether it's contaminated because it's the same thing, forbidden milk with permitted milk, you can't assess it for taste, so we can't assess it for taste, we estimate by 1 60th. So, you know, if you have, if you accidentally drop, um, one little drop of milk into a massive cauldron of meat stew, the milk only trafes up the stew if it was more than 1 60th of the total volume. It's less than that, it doesn't count. It's, nobody's gonna detect it. It's like, it's not even there, it's a mistake. So in other words, according to this, we would have to find out, given that all milk is all mixed together in factory farms, it would have to be the case that less than a 60th of cows are trefot in order for the whole sum of milk to be permitted. Nothing we learned before about all the grounds for allowing milk, meaning that you could assume that your particular cow that produced the particular milk you're drinking, you can assume that it's fine because most of the time it is. The standard for that isn't 60 times. The standard for 60 times is when things get mixed in. And here we know for sure that the milk that is being consumed comes from all the cows in a particular farm, maybe even multiple ones milk mixed together. So we would need to find that, um, that the 
percentage of not trefoed, if you go and when animals are slaughtered, what percentage of the animals um, end up being kosher versus versus trefoed? To my knowledge, it was never as much as 60 to 1. It was still relatively unusual to find a trefoed, but not necessarily 60 to 1. And certainly, while it's very difficult to get data about the situation in industrial agriculture because industrial agriculture is so um, notoriously cagey and hiding, uh, refusing to let inspections come in, and especially now, more and more states are passing these ag gag laws, agricultural gag laws that um, that eliminate First Amendment rights um, on factory farms and slaughterhouses so that media can't access to find out what's going on. So it's very difficult to find out. Nevertheless, Rabbi Michal Zilberman of Yeshiva University, a disciple of Rabbi Herschel Schachter, was a prominent right-wing uh, Orthodox rabbi. Um, rabbi Zilberman wrote an article some years back, maybe 15, 15 years ago or so, 20 years ago, um, um, that based on some information he got from, I think it was South African farmers actually, saying that in contemporary agricultural context, you might even have a majority of animals that end up being trefoe. The conditions are so unhealthy to animals that the assumptions are totally out of whack but from what has been seen like historically. We saw a glimpse of that um, in our session on Sar Bale Chaim, the restriction of causing pain to animals. Rav Moshe Feinstein in his, uh, his reaction to the raising of veal. And he's like, I'm finding out now that like most of, many of these animals turn out to be trefoed. And he sort of flips his lid. Like, how can that be? Entire rabbinic literature assumes otherwise. So how are we going to say that we can just casually, cavalierly, casually create a situation that undermines everything that the rabbis knew about the way the world works? Um, and that was the basis of their legal presumptions. With milk, that's especially the case. The reason why milk is permitted, despite the fact that any milk might come from an animal that's forbidden, we just don't know. We don't we'll be able to know until the animal's dead, is because usually they're not. Well, what if usually they are? So today, maybe usually they are. And even if it's not usually they are, once all the milk is being mixed together, the Talmud's basic presumption, the reason you're allowed to drink milk is because you can assume this particular cow that it came from was permitted. That's not the case anymore. It hasn't been the case for decades. Um, and so it seems to me, based on the simplest reading of these core halachic sources, it seems to me that milk and eggs from dairy and eggs from industrial agriculture let's start with dairy because it's all mixed together. Dairy from industrial agriculture is prohibited by rabbinic law to consume because we definitely have mixtures of trefa forbidden milk with kosher milk. We don't even know the, the ratios, but it seems certain that the ratios are more than 160th forbidden milk. And so it's a forbidden mixture. All of it becomes forbidden. Um, I'm not the only person to say this, Rabbi Herschel Schechter, who I don't know personally, but famously for um, 
some 20 years or so has personally um, abstained from factory farmed dairy and made that well known. Um, he hasn't gone kind of on the like the war path against like the OU or other Kashrut certifiers, but it's known that that's his practice and uh, some other people who follow him. Um, there have been some scrambling attempts to respond, um, but I did want to share this core perspective of the core biblical and rabbinic texts. I think that the burden of proof that dairy could be permitted, I think is very strongly on those who are drinking it because what the Talmud says about why milk is permitted, it gives a very specific answer. And the, the case, the, the reality that it describes is not present at all. The reason why milk is permitted is because that animal can be assumed to be kosher. There is no that animal. And if there was, like the, the numbers are very out of whack. So I want to, um, whereas if you are farming, you have some goats in your yard and you milk them, then I think that would stick with the Talmudic law that like if the goats aren't no, no uh visibly sick um in a more you know mortally dangerous dangerously sick or injured way you can drink that milk and presume that it's okay and if later for the end of its life you bring it to a chocolate and slaughter and it turns out that it actually um had an illness you didn't know about you can have a clean conscience that you didn't um, you didn't normally consume forbidden food. Um, that is, but in any industrial context, um, according to a plain reading of the Talmud and its uh, and the post game legal authorities, I don't see. Um, well, let's put it more gently. The obvious conclusion would be that milk is forbidden from industrial agriculture, and the creative burden of proof is going to be on those who want to argue that it's permitted with eggs. It's basically the same situation. You don't have eggs aren't mixed in the same way that milk is, but the eggs at eggs as a quantity really function the same way. So there's a massive, um, massive chicken farm raised for eggs. Those eggs aren't being divided per chicken. They're being, Grouped together, there's no way of knowing like which which chicken they came from, and we have. Um, so I think it's it's a it's more akin to what we call yavesh yavesh min bimino, like dry food mixed with each other, theoretically separatable but not practically separatable, and that would go back to the one sixtieth law as well. And um, from the from what we can put together, it's hard to imagine that like uh that there's 60 times that the trefa chickens are less than a 60th of what's on factory farms but it's harder to know we have a little more evidence about dairy um i'll pause there and open up emma if any questions have come through or if anyone who's here on the call on zoom has any questions no questions on my end um, does anyone here on the call, um, Ellie, Eddie, Kathy, Angelique, Dina, Rashmuli, 
Emma, do any of you have questions or things that you wonder? I think it's good pedagogy to wait longer than people generally think is typical of accepting that quiet silence as a meditation practice because people take different amount of time to think and produce their question and that's okay. So, you know, I'll share in the meantime, and now people can start thinking if you have other questions, now could be a time to send them in. Um, so we have a few minutes left. A couple of years ago, I asked this question to a, a teacher of mine. I've asked this to numerous rabbis and teachers and colleagues of mine over the years. And generally didn't have received any responses. One person who is a responsible person and a smart, yes, a very learned person, but it is also consumes a lot of animals and animal products. When I raised this line of reasoning in a Facebook discussion, he actually just shared that instead of engaging with the substance, shared that um, maybe it'd be better for me to keep this to myself because of the rabbinic principle that mutav shayu shogigin mishayu mezidim, that it's, it's better for people to act um, accidentally, inadvertently than on purpose. And this is probably something that people aren't going to change their practice on the base of it. So it's better not to publicize it. And also the rabbinic concept that you know, a court can't issue an edict on a community that's beyond the capacity of that community to follow. Um, and that actually has a history of being applied to animal consumption, like the origin of that phrase, if I remember correctly, is in a statement like, after the temple's destroyed, shouldn't we be forbidden from drinking wine and eating meat? And I think it's in that context that the rabbis are like, that would be a step too far. Because then you're just going to have like a lot of people willfully sinning and saying that like Torah is impossible. They're not going to go for it. So that was his response. And I thought it was... He might be right in terms of the public, public policy, but there's no history to my knowledge of applying mutav shayu and better to be inadvertent than, than purposeful with regard to like other members of the rabbinic class, fellow rabbis and so on. You never, you see that about the masses, like when are they going to listen to what we say? But for a fellow, anytime you'd say that, the fellow rabbis would say, Okay, uh, I, yeah, th this is legally convincing. I have to like abstain personally, but I'm just going to be hesitant about how aggressively I share that information because we don't want to have a whole community where, like, you know, 
everybody is a willful public sinner and therefore nobody is considered like a, a, a reliable witness to a contract because everybody is willfully sinful. So I thought that was a pretty weak answer on his part. I asked the question of um, a teacher of mine who's also not a big meat eater, but does eat animals and, and dairy. Asked him this question uh, several years ago. And his answer was sort of creatively interesting, but I found kind of unsatisfying that um, he thought I was being a little bit too formally literal about the origin of the permission to eat dairy. And the rabbi says, because you can make this assumption that the particular animal is kosher. So they're, they're, they're justifying a practice that has always been practiced and using the terms available. And what his response was, he assumes that if those same rabbis lived in an environment of industrial agriculture where milk wasn't from an individual animal but mixed in, they would have find, found a different mechanism to justify the practice that existed. Now, that might be right. It's speculative. He's a creative thinker and he's very anti-formal. Um, uh, I don't, I'm trying not to name the names here because I, I don't, I'm, I'm not trying to hate on particular teachers or friends. And I, I don't think that the answers they gave are that distinctive. I think these are widespread common um, phenomena. So um, I just want to give an example of the kinds of responses that I've gotten from people in my conversation who are quite learned, more learned than I. Um, and he said, you know, he just, he doesn't think the right legal way to read the Talmudic text about the reason for milk being permitted is to translate that literally, but to translate it more broadly as even though sometimes animals are trefa, milk is okay. Unless you for sure know that this milk came from trefa. For me, I look at factory farm dairy. I think we know for sure that like a huge bulk of that milk is trefa mixed in. Um, so I found that unsatisfying. Um, we do have a couple comments um, and I do have a question for you. Great. You want me to read these comments out loud first or do you want to ask a question first? Ah, I can ask the question. Great. Go ahead. How can we bring intersectionality into animal rights work? Well, intersectionality refers to the ways in which bodies who are oppressed can be oppressed in multiple ways simultaneously. Like the, the, for example, the unique oppression of, let's say, an indigenous person who's also poor or uh, somebody who's a black woman and is oppressed in those multiple ways or somebody who is indigenous and Jewish or something. Um, so most of the categories we talk about are within the human experience. Um, so I'm not sure that intersectionality immediately is the most obvious frame of reference for thinking about animal welfare and animal rights. Um, unless we're really talking about the planetary destruction, climate crisis, water safety perspective. And I think when we talk about capitalism as a, as a one system that is despoiling the planet, like a system that is about extractivism um, for the few at the expense of the many, what are the ways in which um, sentient beings 
everything from the water and the earth and the atmosphere itself as sentient beings, especially animals, to humans of all sorts um, experience that in multiple ways. But um, I think it's an interesting question. I'm not sure I have much more um, in this context. What do you think about it, Derry? Thank you. If I can ask um, a question, Rabbi. Yeah, go ahead, Eddie. Um, hope all is well, brother. I love learning from you each time. Um, good to hear your voice. I'm, I'm definitely interested in continuing this conversation around intersectionality because I, I think that a lot of folks, even in the progressive movement, are closed off to talking about animal rights because they see no real tie into a lot of things. Um, but something that I see of a tie-in is talking about the um, the awful treatment also of migrant workers that are typically used in slaughterhouses. So I guess like my conversation, yeah. my question would be like, how do we really bring those two conversations up to not only address like this is like happening and then this is what links to this, if that makes sense. Definitely. Yeah. So I, I don't, I don't think that's exactly how people talk about intersectionality, but definitely I think it's true that there are multiple oppressions whose fates are inter uh, intersecting with each other and there should be solidarity and uh, coalitional work. Um, I confess that just as sometimes in like vegan movement, I'm sometimes disappointed and crestfallen by how many vegans are resistant to dealing with racism and misogyny and like, you know, make it into like vegan lifestyle things or uh, really just like have a, a kind of white veganism. It's very well critiqued by a bunch of black vegans such as Silco and Afco and other important writers. Same thing happens the other way. I've been crestfallen to see in a lot of social justice contexts, labor movements, um, less so in the environmental movement, but more labor movement and other contexts like that where, and feminist movement, anti-racist movements, where people are not only not interested in talking about animals, but are so interested in not talking about non-human animals that if animals are also oppressed in a context where people in land are, are oppressed, they even won't talk about the things that are their bread and butter issue because it's also an animal thing. So for example, everything that you bring up there, Eddie, about, you know, it, if you want to look at, you know, what is ground zero for um, the oppression of migrant workers and, you know, in, and, and undocumented uh, immigrants in this country. Factory farms and slaughterhouses. If you want to talk, if you care about labor justice, what are the places where there are the most egregious labor abuses? Factory farms and slaughterhouses. If you care about environmental sustainability, what are the places with, that are the most egregiously um, destructive to the planet? Factory farms and slaughterhouses. Um, and so I think, you know, there's some other examples too. So once you look at it that way, I think, yeah, the, our fates, including the fates of animals and the fates of humans and the fate of our planet are intersected. I'll just close with going back to, you know, I think that there's one angle to think about, and then we'll close with this as a potential direction for thinking intersectionally um, about uh, animal rights, animal welfare. And that's with feminism and I think like really grappling with with meat production and, and egg and dairy production happen through the very controlled sexuality of female sentient beings 
And in many cases, the abuse or rape, sexualized torture, um, you see that if you watch, you know, the documentaries like Eating Animals and Food Inc. and so on, you start to see these examples of the ways in which um, torture is sexualized in ways not that dissimilar to the way that like torture is sexualized in human misogyny. Um, and I think, you know, the, the book that really does the most work at laying that thinking out is a classic Carol Adams, the sexual politics of meat, um, which has had a few subsequent editions. Um, I recommend reading it. I think that Carol Adams does, um, if you're interested in intersectional ways of thinking about animal movement, I think Carol Adams, Sexual Politics of Meat, and AFCO and Silco uh, Afroism, um, in terms of the, the racialization of animals and the animalization of racialized um, racialized human bodies, um, are, I think, probably the most fruitful ways to think about, uh, that I know of, to think about intersectionality or to think about animal welfare and animal rights intersectionally. Um, and I'm just, let's note there was a uh, comment from Ellie, but if people knew what was happening to the factory farm cows, they wouldn't want to drink milk. We should shout it from the rooftops, cruelty inadvertently is still cruel. I wish, I wish I thought that was right. Unfortunately, I think at this point, we have a lot of evidence that people who do know, who, you know, who saw eating animals or read the book and, um, and still consume the products or, you know, any of the other media read Michael Pollan's writing in the New York Times magazine some 20 years ago and still do these practices. I don't think it's as simple as getting the word out. I think there's some other, although I think we should all do that. And many people refuse to read or see these films because they're afraid of the impact. So I think we should do that work. And also it's a hard thing for our movement to confront. A lot of people know the information, note taken. I agree that it's a bad thing about our world. And I eat how I eat. That's something we got to grapple with too. I'll leave it at that and turn it back over to Emma for other announcements and to thank you again, everybody participating and watching on Facebook Live, as well as uh, to Shemayim for sponsoring this wonderful series and helping us uh, get the word out and study Torah together. Thank you so much for the class and thank you so much to everyone who joined and commented and asked questions. Um, I did just want to say before we go, we have a climate change panel with Uri Litsedek happening on January 19th, and also a class about so social justice and Kashrut law on February 23rd, also with Uri Litsedek, if you're interested in those topics. And yeah, stay tuned for more classes with us coming soon. Thank you so much. Bye.